Hello and welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ruben Williams and with me, as always, is the Grand Slam, Ryan Walker. How are you, my friend? I'm going well, Rubes. Uh, I love the themed word there. Uh, right on point for today's episode. So, Was, was, that, an, was that an intended pun you just pulled out? Uh, no, no <laughs> pun intended. Uh, <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, you though. really aced that. Yeah. Oh, there, no, but, um... don't, don't even, don't don't even start. Uh, no, but I'm good, mate. How are you going? Excellent, excellent. Uh, the US Open is back. We've got Sean Carey, the Managing Director of Competition Operations, uh, on the pod today, which is extremely exciting. And another uh, former Cricket Australia employee. So there's a bit of bit of uh, history between us there. Mm. We didn't cross over with him, but um, I remember hearing his name around the traps a fair bit. So it's awesome to kind of hear what he's up to now. But um, well, we might start by mentioning our, our good friends at Deakin University, my old stomping ground, Ryan, where, uh, yeah. uh, as I know full well, every single course is backed by industry experts. A lot of them are extremely great people. So anyone who wants to head there can be confident that you're going to get the job you want with a degree employers want. It certainly was the case with me, Ryan. I've loved my time at Deakin and at Cricket Australia and even just dealing with Deakin since it's been terrific. So if you want progressive real-world learning, which we love, Ryan, then uh, Deakin is the place to go. Um, but for those of you who are listening for the first time, you're wondering, who are these two guys? Um, if you want to learn more about us, we're on LinkedIn. You can find all about our background there. We started on the same day at Cricket Australia way back in 2017, but we'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Um, message us if you've got any questions about anything at all. But um, today's episode, Ryan, what, uh, what stood out to you? Um, the first one that stood out to me was, you know, what goes into creating the US Open draw? I gen- I genuinely just, I kind of just assumed that a computer did it. Uh, but to hear all the work that goes on behind the scenes and all the different people that are involved, um, I won't go into depth, but it's it's crazy. Um, so it was really cool to to hear, you know, what happens behind the scenes and and what role Sean plays in that? Mm, it's just like you you know the US Open is a massive thing, but you just you just don't hear about actually what happens to pull it all together. And so mm. in a similar vein, uh, hearing about the 12-month planning cycle and how, you know, different sections of the year are devoted to different operations and executions um, was really interesting to, to understand. Um, and also interesting to understand how the pandemic kind of completely threw that out the window and they had to um, yeah. come up with it again. Yeah, awesome. Um, th- the last one, and we love this with any guests, but, you know, Sean spoke about the key skills that he looks for when recruiting grads. So, I mean, anyone who's listening, that's probably a key part around what, they, what they're keen to know. So um, stay tuned for that. Um, it was it was good to see, and he even spoke about a recent grad that he's hired, and some of the stuff mm. that she's done. So, um, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, Brooke, if you're listening, you're about to get embarrassed, but uh, well done on the incredible experience you've built up to uh, get a mention on the pod. But uh, without further ado, grab a pen and enjoy this chat with Sean Carey. 
Sean. Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast. Thanks, guys. Um, thanks for having me. What a pleasure to um, be talking to two Aussies all the way back there uh, from Orlando, Florida. Um, well done on what you're trying to achieve. Uh, I had a look through your website and saw a number of the things you are setting out to achieve. And I think if this resource was available when I was coming through the graduate path out of university and through cricket and what have you, then I might be in a different place today, but um, you're doing great things. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that really appreciate the work you're doing and the initiative you've shown. Uh, thank you very much. That's uh, that's very kind. Um, and I'm not sure you'd want to change the place you're in today. You're over in sunny Florida, which sounds much better than cold, wet Melbourne in the middle of winter. So um, I wouldn't change a thing if I were you. But um, we wanted to um, to kick off by talking about why you're in Orlando, Florida, and that's because you are part of the US Open. Uh, now, we know a tournament like the US Open is a massive operation, and there's plenty of people who are involved in the on-court delivery of a tournament such as the US Open. Now, given your insight as to what goes on, can you share with us perhaps one role that helps the on-court services go to, uh, all go ahead that perhaps you know most people wouldn't be aware of even exists unless you're working at the tournament? Yeah, as you guys can probably imagine, there's a, there's a thousand things that go on behind the scenes that the general public don't get... Um, don't get or well, I'm privy to uh, and it's an absolute honor and pleasure to, to be part of one of the biggest international sporting events um, on the in the globe and um, to have a have a role in that is um, amazing it, it's a hard it's hard work don't get me wrong um, anyone who's in the sport and entertainment industry and involved in a major event that you know um, it's not pretty when the event's actually happening but when you sit back and reflect on it after, um, you think what an amazing um, journey that had been. So to answer your question, um, I'm not sure how well uh, you know tennis, uh, but in a, in a singles main draw, let's use the singles main draw as our example. There's 128 players uh, that start off um, on the men's side and 128 on the women's side. And the two, so if we're just focusing on the men's draw, um, the two draws are split in half. Uh, and each half of the draw plays on alternate days. Uh, so you start off on first day of main draw, Monday, um, August 30th, I think this year. Uh, and what I'm going to explain to you is how the schedule is actually unfolded um, and the order of plays. So uh, if, we're, if we're playing, if we're thinking about the men's draw, um, there's a lot of research and a lot of communication and um, meetings happen leading into that first Monday with um, sponsors, with broadcast partners, um, with the men's tour. So the men's tour has a player representative. Um, and, and our host broadcaster, ESPN, uh, might be thinking a week ahead. So they're thinking on Friday we'd like to have X player playing in the night session or on Saturday night because... Saturday, the first Saturday, uh, the first Saturday in the in the main draw is actually the start of the college football season here, and ESPN play a, a big role in the broadcast. So Saturday is a bit of a juggling act for them, and they they might say, look, if all things go to plan, we want Roger Federer playing on Friday night. 
um, because that that's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck. So if if they give us that in advance, then we know we have to start the the, the half that Roger Federer finds himself in in a draw. We have to start him on Monday. Now Roger's manager may come and say to us, "Look, he's got a bit of a niggle. Um, we prefer the extra day. We want to play him on Tuesday. We want to start him on Tuesday." So then we're in a bit of a juggling act, and it's and although I don't have an official role in in defining the schedule, there is um, there are so many inputs, uh, and the tournament referee, the tournament director. Um, the player representative, uh, the broadcaster, they all they all want their piece. And then then the other side of it is um, we have our host broadcaster in ESPN, but then we have international broadcasters as well. So um, let's say we, we play we play Monday and we get half of the draw knocked out uh, and there's 64 players and, and then the next time they're going to play is round two and that's going to be on Wednesday. Um, we know from all the winners on Monday from Monday night, the research starts happening and the conversations start happening on Tuesday with the international broadcast players and saying, look, these are the European players that are left in the draw. When when's prime time for you guys? When would you like to see them on the court? Which courts would you like to see them? And that all gets thrown into the mix of of presenting the order of play um, on Tuesday night about six o'clock for Wednesday's uh, match play. So uh Believe it or not, the computer doesn't spit out the order of play. There's actually a whole lot of human input and many, many different parties who want to have their say, including the player managers, uh, the broadcasters, the sponsors, uh, and then what we think is going to be best for uh, trying to get um, American players uh, through in, 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 in a, an efficient time frame as well. It sounds like um, you know, if you compare that to another sport, you've got the two teams who want their each of their countries to be shown at a you know reasonable time then you've got what the governing body and the broadcaster for you guys you've got those parties except rather than the two teams every single player is kind of like their own team so you're dealing with you know up to 100 different inputs of when you know matches could be scheduled so that sounds uh like a lot to handle yeah, it's um, as I said, it's nice being a fly in the wall without having the <laughs> ultimate decision-making um, process. But it's certainly fascinating listening to all the different conversations that go on um, between between those different um, inputs into the into the day's order of play. So, Sean, what what does your role as managing director of competition operations involve? Uh, yeah, it's a um, an interesting one. I'm I'm very fortunate in that I have quite a varied uh, role. So um, I guess my my nine to five job is actually overseeing the American officiating uh, process. Um, very few people at the USTA, the United States Tennis Association, are 100% engaged in just the U.S. Open. Um, in fact. The U.S. Open, as much as it occupies a lot of our time, uh, it is it is a, a an added part to our role. Uh, and yes, my responsibility at the U.S. Open has grown over the four years um, I've been here. Uh, but I, I came to the U.S. Um, to take on this role of of make um, defining a, a strategic transformation for American officiating. So. 
a big part of, of that was uh, getting to understand the ecosystem, the tennis ecosystem here in the States and what role the officials played. And when we launched our strategic plan in 2019, which was on the back of about 18 months of research and understanding and getting feedback from all the different stakeholders, um, we launched the spirit of officiating and the mission of, of American officials was to deliver um, the best in class consumer experience. Uh, and that being to the, for the players, because we know that a lot of players pick up the racket for a first, for the very first time and they go and have an experience which isn't, isn't so great and then they don't come back, uh, which is something that as a national governing body, we're obviously very focused on in trying to improve repeat um, uh, tennis players and, and keep bringing them back. And one of the things, one of the, I guess, the pieces of the ecosystem that we believe has such an important role in delivering that ultimate tennis experience is the role of the official. And I think largely they've been left out of the ecosystem. They've been treated separately and differently. So a big part of our strategic plan is, is bringing them into the ecosystem, making, making them feel special, making them feel as if they are part of the tennis community and, and actually developing a community amongst the officials. So they feel as if they are a part of the family and part of their own family and they're well respected and uh, and so on so that that has been um quite for the first two or three years of my role that was a large focus of mine um to really improve the community around and the support and the training and education and um and all of that that really helps um deliver well credentialed well um educated and and highly skilled officials to officiate across 10,000 community events that happen every year within the United States tennis ecosystem. And then now that we've got that strategic plan running and it's going quite well, my focus uh, then turned to the US Open and a big part of the US Open again was to build a more integrated competition operation area. So that means um, the referees team uh, the, the officials team, the ball persons team, and how they integrate with broadcast, with sponsors, um, on-court operations, and all of that has been a big focus of, of developing a more integrated, inclusive, uh, and collaborative team that, that really is engaged in, in creating a fair and equitable playing arena for, for the players to go about their business um, as best as they possibly can. You mentioned some of the, the timelines around strategic plans coming together and, and being implemented. I'm wondering if you could give us a bit of an insight into the planning cycle for the US Open because you've got, what, a two-week tournament that requires 12 months of planning and, and execution to, to roll out. How does, um, how does the planning cycle for those 12 months leading into the two weeks usually work? Firstly, I'm going to correct you and say it's a three-week tournament. Three-week, my mistake. Because we have we have the qualifying um, the qualifying tournament, which is the week leading into the main draw, and um, pre-pandemic, um, that that week was what we determined what we called Fan Week, uh, and we it was free admission for anyone that wanted to come and watch the best ten the best tennis outside of a Grand Slam. So. These players are ranked anywhere from 105 to 200. Um, so they're, they're the top, top, top elite um, athletes playing tennis. So 
we wanted to um, really kind of welcome anyone who wanted to come and watch high-level tennis without having to pay um, for a ticket into the main draw. So, but then the pandemic hit and uh, all of our planning kind of got thrown into a massive spiral. Um, so the planning cycle uh, for the 2020 US Open was just unbelievable. Uh, we, we didn't know we were actually going to be hosting a Grand Slam event until probably late May, early June uh, for a, for an, a mid-August kickoff. Uh, so I guess since the pandemic has come, I, I, don't, I couldn't answer the question of what's the planning cycle <laughs> other than to say that um, at the end of the event, um, after we've all kind of recharged uh, because a, a month in New York can really kind of sap you of, of your energy and your, your, your motivation levels for continuing on your normal day job. So uh, a couple of weeks after we sit down as a group and, and we recap like you would any event and look at things that work particularly well and things that you think you can improve on. And trust me, when you're in live entertainment, um, there are plenty of things that crop up that you just cannot plan for, like your number one, um, your number one ranked male hitting a hitting a line judge with a ball and being defaulted midway through the tournament, uh, and you go, well, how can we prevent that from happening next next year? Or your number one female player um, having a in the 2018 U.S. Open men's women's so U.S. Open women's final. Um, when she had the, the run-in with the chair umpire and um, the social injustice messages that came out of that and uh, the sexist remarks and all of that sort of stuff. Like, you just can't plan for that and that has a, such an enormous impact on, on your event that you, you need to really think about, um, you think outside the square a little bit as to how you might be able to improve and, and, and mitigate the risk of that happening again because it, it can have an impact on your event and where you can, you try and, you try and reduce that impact so that um, it, there's no negative, ne negativity coming out of it. But normally, yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a recap um, two to four weeks after the event and then when we start planning uh, new initiatives and the US Open really prides itself on being an inno innovative Grand Slam, um, there are a number of new initiatives that have started in tennis that have, have commenced at the US Open that we're really proud of. Um, so we start thinking about how we can improve the technology, how we can improve the fan experience, how we can improve the player experience. And we start working with the, the respective teams and the two tours, the WTA and the ATP, have a significant part to, to play in that, as does the ITF and the Grand Slam board. So there are a number of players that are engaged in in the, I guess, the planning and the hosting of, of a Grand Slam. And we need to be collaborative and communicative and, and inclusive with all those groups to ensure that we're all on the same page by the time um, the first ball is played on that on that Monday of the main draw. You mentioned um, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. <laughs> um what what are some of the new considerations you've had to work through due to the pandemic? I know in Australia we use you know um, computer line judging as one thing to reduce you know people on the court, but I was just wondering, are there any other things that you you've had to consider now that we're in a, a pandemic world? Yeah, so um, 
Tennis Australia actually followed the US Open with the automated line calling and the ELC live product where, I mean, we, we were forced to uh, look at that new technology. We probably fast-tracked its evolution into the Grand Slam um, space by about three to five years. Uh, and for me, who is responsible and for my team who's responsible for overseeing um, the, the tennis officiating pathway for the country, um, it was a really tough decision that we had to make uh, because you, you're taking away um, the jewel in the crown for a lot of uh, grassroots tennis officials who, who come to the US Open and they see that those three weeks as the pinnacle of, of their career and the pinnacle of their profession. So to have to make the decision which was based on the mitigation of risk and, and the, the mitigating the, the spread of COVID and reducing the number of people on site, uh, we had to look at that that technology seriously and because and, we knew that that was going to have a, a massive bearing on, on us being able to host an international event in a country that was at the peak, uh, the epicentre at that time of the, of the pandemic, um, in, in being able to convince the government authorities and so on that we were going to be able to host a, a safe um, a safe event. So uh, again, the US Open was proud to be the innovators and, and be the ones that, that launched that technology at that level of tennis for the very first time. And we're pleased that other events have followed suit and, and we're continuing to to improve and grow the technology uh, with our partners, and um, and we'll use it again in in twenty uh, in twenty twenty one this year. Um, but in terms of other things, like we have another part of my role is overseeing uh, the scoring systems, which really everything around the U.S. Open focuses on the scoring system that the chair umpire has has control of. Uh, from there, a lot of the data is analysed and. Um, and we used to have everyone that did data analytics on site. Uh, and so we were able to talk to, um, again, the, the vendors who provide the service and say, look, we need to, we need to think about how we can remote a lot of these services and, and get people off site and, and ensure that they can still perform their role without it impacting on the, on the quality of their service. And being able to, to look at those things uh, while the pandemic was happening has actually helped us or made us realise that forever, whether it's a pandemic in place or not, we can have these services um, being operated off-site, which then allows us to, when fans do come back and corporates do come back and we can have hospitality, we can use those spa those spaces that uh, can potentially generate more revenue for us. And, and that revenue then gets uh, fed back into the ecosystem for the promotion and development of the game. You mentioned um, finding ways to generate new revenue. I was just wondering how much extra cost uh, do these, like for example, the, the new scoring system or you know the new way to, to track the ball, how much does that cost to the US Open? Well, you, you'll actually be surprised that the automated line calling reduced our cost by about half a million dollars. Um, oh. so, so when you, and I'll explain how. Um, so with, with line umpires at the US Open, we have 400 officials on site. Wow. We, we put them in a hotel, we feed yeah. them, we transport them, we pay them a fee. So without the technology, so with the technology, 
that reduces our, our officiating count down to 130 people. So we've saved 270 people and, and over three weeks, that's a lot of hotel rooms in, in Manhattan, which aren't cheap as you can, <laughs> as you can possibly imagine. So, uh, but with that, we also um, have to create new roles and there are costs that go elsewhere to, to put on the technology. But overall, it actually saved uh, my budget half a million dollars. Uh, and and that, that goes with, um, I guess, because you're hosting an event like that in New York, um, the actual on costs of, of hosting it in New York, New York aren't, aren't inexpensive. So when you can have services that are either remoted in another part of the country, like uh, scoring systems and data analytics and all that is out of Jacksonville in, in Florida, it's, it's way cheaper than, than having those people housed and fed in New York. You mentioned the, the 130 officials that still come in for, for the tournament. What's the process of um, like recruiting, training and communicating with all those different people to make sure they're in the right spot doing what they need to do? Because I'd imagine they're coming from all different parts of the world. I don't know tennis too intricately, but I imagine they've probably gone from tournament to tournament. So how do you kind of congregate this group of people to officiate the US Open? Yes, it's a, it's a pretty... It's a pretty well-oiled machine now, uh, Ruben. Um, so the, let, let's talk about the chair umpires, uh, which are the, the, the main official now with the, the new technology. Uh, so largely they are international officials. They're the best of the best. Um, so the ITF has a, has a full-time team. Um, they're, the, they're employed by the ITF and the Grand Slam board. And they, they're full-time uh, contractors uh, to those two organisations. And because the... The Grand Slam, the US Open is part of the, the Grand Slam board uh, with the other three, Roland Garros, Wimbledon and the Australian Open. Uh, those probably nine to 12 officials will do all four Grand Slam events and then any Davis Cup and or um, now the Billie Jean King Cup, ex-Fed Cup, um, the women's side events. And they're also involved in the education and training of officials coming through the system in the international arena. Uh, so they, they, they're involved in um, schools around the world um, as part of their contract, not just to officiate, but also uh, to, to run these education programs on behalf of the ITF to educate the next level of international officials. So there's 10 or 12, uh, and then the remainder would be selected through either officials that are contracted to the men's tour, the ATP, officials contracted to the women's tour. So we work really closely with those two entities to select um, the, the rest. So we probably have uh, 20 to 30 chair umpires on site. And we've also got some American chair umpires that, um, that fit the mold that aren't part of either the ITF or the, the two tour teams. So. That's how we get our 30-odd chair umpires. And they range in badge level, gold being highest, down to bronze. And then if we have our juniors, then we've got some national officials that are starting to develop their, their career uh, and they're working their way through. They might be part of an ITF school, uh, but they're developing their, their trade. And we use the opportunity like a, um, the US Open Junior event to, to show their wares and to put them in front of um, the ITF to and to build their skills and, and experiences to get them into those international schools. And then 
we have another role which is kind of taking place of the, the role of the line umpire. So we have a match assistant, which is uh, now a role that we are starting to develop and we'll have some education and training around. Because we don't have line umpires on the court, um, people, when, when a player needs to have a change of attire or to go to a toilet break, they need to be assisted and escorted. And uh, these these people are, are on court being, I guess, the the eyes and ears for the for the chair umpire at court level and, and helping the players do what they have to do that the chair umpire can't because they're sitting up in the chair controlling the match. Jeez, it's uh it's quite the process. I've always wondered, uh, you know, how do I become an um, an umpire or a, or a line line umpire? Be quite cool. Um, Sean, communications clearly probably very important, if not the most important. Um, part for you know officials to deliver the best in class for um, consumer experience. How do you go about creating a communication strategy? Yeah, so we, I mean, you're right. Um, we have probably two and a half, three thousand officials spread far and wide across the country, and ninety five ninety five percent of our officiating occurs at the community level uh, between junior adult competition, wheelchair competition, and and just the, the top four or five percent uh, make it to the to the international or professional arena. So our guiding principles around a, a communication strategy is that the more informed our officials are, um, the better they will be at being able to do their job effectively and the better they will be at being able to deliver that, that best-in-class um, consumer experience. So... We know that communication really helps to build the trust uh, with our officials and, and we've worked really hard to build the trust over the last few years, especially since we've started to evolve this new culture and um, within our strategic plan. But in any communication plan, it's no different um, whether we're communicating to tennis officials, whether we're communicating to sponsors or or, or whatever it is. We, we've, you've got to understand what 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 we're trying to communicate and what they need to know, um, who the audience is, uh, and in this case, it's it's chair umpires or if it's the whole group. Um, so we try and work out who needs to know it. And then from there, we'll probably be better informed as to what the best delivery method is, uh, whether it's direct communication, whether it's social media, uh, whether it's email, um, whether it's snail mail. And, uh, we have officials uh, ranging in age anywhere from 14 or 15 right through to 80 or 85. So um, not everyone in the, that more experienced age bracket have access to computers. So we've got to think about that. And if we need to communicate to them that they've got to get their vision form in bef before the, the recertification period starts, because that's part of, uh, that's a requirement of recertification then we've got to make sure they understand and, and how they can get that in so that they can officiate again next year. So um, so, so it's it's no different from any other communication plan. Understanding who your audience is, um, what what you want to communicate and what they need to know and then therefore what the best method or the best medium it is to get that information to them. And, and are the messages that you're sharing with your umpires around the country, are they ad hoc messages or do you understand every single message that you need to send before the start of the season and plan out at what points they go out? 
Yeah, so we do have a, a pretty regimented cycle um, and it all revolves around the recertification period, which happens post US Open around, around the end of September, start of October. Uh, and there are certain requirements every year that officials need to meet um, to be able to be recertified. So throughout the year, um, we, we'll send, start sending communications around those requirements to make sure that um, they are aware of what, what's required this year and what they need to achieve, whether it's an education, whether it's completing your safe play, your background check, um, your, your vision form, or we might say that we've got some education, specific education that we'd like officials to complete this year as part of that process. So there is definitely a, um, a routine that we stick to. And then we have celebrations as well. And we have uh, quarterly newsletters that go out that um, kind of lighten up the mood a little bit to and it's part of that building the community and building the trust and making them feel as if they are part of the tennis ecosystem and not this group of people who are left out on the out on their side. That's it. Happy umpires makes a happy tennis, I'd imagine. Happy umpires <laughs> certainly make happy parents, which then help <laughs> players perform well on the court. Excellent. Um, coming, coming back to you probably more specifically, um, for graduates who are listening to this right now and are thinking about the direction that they want to take their career, what sort of person do you think would suit your job right now? I'm wondering if you could talk to perhaps some of the, um, you know, the skills or interests that might suit what you do now. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I mean, I, uh, I it, it's hard to try and put my shoe put my shoes on in or put the graduate shoes on and think about um, how I got here and, and what were some of the some of the things that helped me get here uh, and and I guess what I've learned since I've been here that I think if I'd had that understanding back when I was a graduate um, how how quickly I might have been able to progress or uh, what opportunities may have presented themselves and I think for me to be able to do my job uh, I need to be quite agile quite nimble. Um, but also uh, because in in sport anything can happen at any time, uh, and you need to you need to have the trust of your team and the people that you work with, um, so that you can go to them at a moment's notice and say, "This is what's happened, uh, and this is what we need to achieve. How are we going to do it?" and and not think that you're the only one that has to solve the problem. You you are a part of the team and your role as a leader is really to try and motivate, inspire and energise your group to be able to help, help the, 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 um, the global we achieve success. Uh, and so having skills that you're able to listen and communicate and understand um, and, and I guess have an inquisitive and curious mind so that you're continually learning and you're continually staying in touch with um, the trends and, and being contemporary in, in your role are really important. So communication skills, interpersonal, written, verbal, um, they're so important when you, you're trying to build relationships and build trust and, 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 and being able to, to motivate and energise your teams around you so that collectively we, we achieve success and we have fun and, 
we can look back and say, wow, um, what a great job we all did. Nice. So if you grads listen to that and just taking down notes, so uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, Sean, finally, can you recall a recent graduate that you've hired and, and what was the most outstanding experience they mentioned in their interview? Yeah, we've got one on, I've got one on my team right now and she's been with us um, since graduation uh, and she's been unbelievable and we're so, <laughs> I think I fluked that that high um, because she's she's been uh, really great and it wasn't one skill and I think uh, when, you, when you're a graduate going into sport, unless you're in a specialised field, um, like for example, you might do finance and you might want to get into the the commercial side or the financial side of, of running a sports organization or you're in data analytics or, or something like that, generally roles within sport are quite varied and quite broad. Uh, and certainly my path has shown that there's not one particular skill that's led me uh, down, down the path or down the career that I've had. So I think for graduates, um, as you're going through college or university, and, and this is what um, Brooke was able to achieve. I oh, don't want to give a name up, but I just did. Um, she'll probably listen to this and, and get a little um, <laughs> embarrassed. But so Brooke had Brooke had uh, reached out and done a fair amount of internships um, throughout her college kind of college um, pathway. She'd also volunteered at, at many different charities and um, and and organisations that really help define her core values and um, and help improve and develop skill sets that uh, when you're going through college, you're wondering how you're going to go for a job and try and sell experience when you don't have a lot. But for me as, as an employer, um, I'm going to look at graduates who have almost identified their core value and their, their core values and their attitude um, to, to a kind of a work mindset by um, the extracurricular stuff they've done, not necessarily the work they've done in their course. So um, Brooke worked with um, a, a, a college football program in an intern and also as a volunteer. And for all those people that understand the college football system in the US, they're massive corporate entities. Uh, and if you're in a Division One corporate football organize, uh, in a Division One corporate, sorry, a Division One football setup, um, you're deriving revenue basically for your whole athletic department. So they're they're running uh, big enterprises, and if you can get skills and experiences in in an AFL team or a state league football team or or netball or whatever it is that's going to help you um, build knowledge and skill in your in your kind of chosen path within your graduate program, then that's going to uh, speak volumes when an employer inter interviews you for a potential role. So look for extracurricular activity that's going to support your, um, your career, your degree, uh, and broaden your horizons. Go and look at charities that might help um, develop your your core values and your and your attitudes and, and things like that because that's going to hold you in really good stead uh, when you're sitting in front of a, a recruiter or a potential employer. 
Awesome. Well, Sean, we'll leave it there. But um, thank you so much for joining the Sports Grade podcast. I'm sure all of our listeners really appreciate everything you've gone through today and like just hearing about the depth of work that needs to go into just figure out who's going to play who at the US Open was quite astonishing. Um, and also just all the behind the scenes stuff that you've mentioned today has been absolutely awesome to listen to. So thanks so much for your time and um, we'll see you next time. There we have it, Ryan. Sean Carey, Managing Director of Competition Operations from the US Open. What did you make of that? Yeah, well, I mean, his role is just so, I don't know how to say it, not broad, but like so complex. Like I feel like he touches a lot of areas of the US Open. So um, it was really cool listening to him, you know, go through all the different parts of, of, of his role. I think um, he mentioned at the end there, you know, about what he's looking for in grads and he mentioned, you know, it's key to find extracurricular activities to add to your resume um, and, and your experience. So, you know, you can find internships or you can you, you can volunteer uh, at, in different capacities and that helps you define your core values. And I think that's probably a really, a really good point because he's looking for people who kind of understand their core values and what they're about. And then ultimately that's going to then transition, transition into whether they're going to fit into the organisation culturally as well. So... Um, just good reinforcement. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the core values piece was interesting because you're essentially looking for people who understand themselves and understand what they want. And if what they want is to work with you, then you're going to want that person working for you rather than someone who's just got a vague idea of what they want. Um, the second piece that I'll, I'll mention is um, – find some charities to get involved with. We talked a lot about internships and uh, volunteer experiences, but uh, Brooke, we'll give Brooke a third mention. Um, she um, Great friend gets of the involved podcast. Great friend of the podcast. Please reach out to us, Brooke. We'd love to, to get to know who you are. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, Sean mentioned some of the charities that Brooke's involved with, which really stood out to him. And that's an area that we probably haven't spoken too much about, but they give you the same opportunities to show initiative, to run events to create examples of work experience for yourself that you don't have to apply for that you can just walk into and start doing stuff immediately and then that's things that you can use on your resume to then present to people like sean and say hey i can do this for the us open yeah absolutely um and the last one that i sort of got from that is you know, when you're meeting people for the first time and, you know, you're networking, you're having a coffee with someone, ask some really in-depth questions about their role and identify what they do behind the scenes because originally when I saw Sean's role, which was Managing Director of Competition Operations, I didn't immediately, immediately think that he was so involved with the umpires and officials. So I think, you know, if you're to really understand what someone does, ask about each of those intricate details because you're not just going to know what someone does from their title. Fantastic. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to connect with us on LinkedIn, you can find us on there. Ping us any extra questions that you might have and we will see you next time.